Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, and welcome to Tent Theology. My name is Natasha Beckles. I am a London-based priest and educator working within the Church of England. A few weeks ago, I had the absolute privilege of interviewing Leroy Logan as part of the Primrose Hill Lecture Series. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Leroy Logan, MBE, is, well, you are in for an extra special treat. Leroy is an ex-London Metropolitan Police Officer who rose through the ranks to superintendent and became one of the founders and even a former chair of the Black Police Association. Leroy's book, Closing Ranks, published in 2020, looks back on his 30-year career and calling to policing, exposing not only the daily experiences of overt racism and endemic workings of institutionalized racism, but highlighting the role of his resilient faith, the critical love and support of his family and friends, all of which has led to Leroy being credited as someone who has helped to profoundly change the Met. His story gives a unique insight to the realities of our modern British past and the cost of our present. Leroy's memoirs on the life and times of a black police officer recently became the subject of one of director Steve McQueen's Small Axe anthology. If you haven't already come across them, you can find them on BBC iPlayer. They are excellent. Closing Ranks is already available in hardback, but will be released in paperback in September. So please do keep an eye out for it. In the meantime, sit back, open your ears, open your heart as we lean into the life, learnings and leadership of Leroy Logan. So will you please put your hands together to welcome Leroy Logan and Natasha Beckles. such a great pleasure to sit with you and the wisdom that Leroy shares and brings to us through his book. It's just incredible and um, I'm really excited for this conversation. Oh, so am I. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. No, it's a real pleasure. I've uh, hot-footed from the dentist chair. (laughs) So uh, literally an hour and a half ago, I was being drilled into, but uh, (laughs) I'm I've survived, thank God, and uh, I'm here to have a conversation with you. Well, your book proves that you're a truly resilient person, and I wondered if you could start us off just by giving us a little bit on your background, where you grew up. I don't know how many people in the audience or online have read the book, but perhaps that would be a good place for us to start. Well, I was born down the road in um, Islington, um, Liverpool Road to be precise where the old Royal Free Hospital um, used to be. It's now Gated Community. So I was um, born in the, the late 50s, 57, and I um, went to school um, in the area, um, St Mary Magdalene, on li- further down Liverpool Road. And, uh, and then I had an opportunity... Well, it wasn't an opportunity. My, my mother said, we're going to Jamaica. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, she took uh, my sister, myself, 
to Jamaica. Yes. And that was a, a master class in identity and who, where I came from, the heritage, the culture, the food, mm. the weather. Hence this Leary shirt is a, <laughs> my, the most I can do to be, you know, that Caribbean vibe. And um, yeah, that, that was in the early 60s. And I came back in 66, in time for the World Cup. So we got that Euro <laughs> 2020 feel, so, you know. Um, and then I went, uh, I went to um, school in Highgate called Ashmount. And then I went to Hyrule Grove School. And uh, Dr. Rhodes Boyson was my headmaster. You might know he was the um, secretary for education in Maggie Thatcher's government. Yes. Um, so you knew exactly your boundaries with him. <laughs> did my um, A-levels in Hackney College, did my degree in University of East London. And then my first job uh, in science, I, I did applied biology as a BSc, and I got my first job in the new site of the Royal Free, which, uh, well, the current site now, just up the road here. So I feel at home here, because, you know... <laughs> Uh, and all my children have been born at the Royal Freeze. So I feel well at home. And, uh, yeah, so, and then I'm a long-suffering gooner, because I grew up in, in a Highbury. So if, any gooners in the house? Yes, yeah. we have to be, some of us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad Saka's doing well in the, uh, the English team, so hopefully he'll carry on doing that. <laughs> well, you mentioned something about going back home to Jamaica and what that did around identity. Could you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I saw people who looked like me in positions of authority in the church, in public services, politicians, and they all looked like me. And so if I could see it, I could be it. So that, that meant that I had an understanding of my potential. Because growing up in the sort of 60s and 70s, there was um, certain stereotypical views of people of difference and what they could achieve. And, that, and I just got that sense that they would talk you out of, you know, your expectations. And I remember a careers teacher when I was at Hybrid Grove said to me, um, when I, what, she said, what do you want to be? And I said, well, I, you know, I want to be a doctor. She said, isn't that a bit high? Isn't that something, you, you know, it's a bit too high? I said... No, because I've seen it in Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas my peers, who grew up in the same sort of background, never saw that, never really understood it. And as a result of that, they, they felt, no, I'm not going to aspire too high. Yeah. And, and then also, because I had that understanding of who I was, I didn't get influenced by peer pressure. And uh, I was very clear on how my, my parents uh, gave me set boundaries, disciplined me in a loving way that, um, you know, I adhered very closely to uh, a talk that your, your parents from the Caribbean tell you. And they say, do not allow police to come to my house. Yes, they do say that. <laughs> don't let police come to the house. So there was a very strong parental pressure. You don't embarrass them. You want them to be proud of you. 
So that, for me, was the masterclass. I, 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 so, and, and there was various things that I, if I didn't adhere to that, those principles and respect for my parents, I could have easily got into trouble. Yeah. And uh, that would have been life-changing, which I, I, I do touch on in the book. Yeah. So for me, it, it was the... It, it put me in good stead. When we met earlier, for those of you who might not know, we had a previous conversation and we talked a little bit about the power and impact of your school and what it offered you when you came back from Jamaica. Could you say a little bit more about what that was? How did that prepare you? In the school itself? Yeah, the school itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a boys' school. It's now a co-head, so... Um, so there's a lot of testosterone, you know, young men <laughs> in those sort of developmental years. And there, there was, um, could, you, you could get, get into some bad groups like most things in life. But I was really pleased that my immediate peers was uh, very musical, actually. Mm. I, I used to work, um, work at playing the trumpet as best I could. I was part of a jazz band, um, sort of Glenn Miller um, style, which uh, I, I loved. I, I loved that sort of, uh, sort of post-war swing, yes. um, bit of a jazz um, appreciation society. You know, I, I, love, I love jazz. And uh, I got that from my dad. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so music was, again, a lot of the, the, out, the anchor that I needed to keep me focused. Um, I did my lessons. I could have done better at school, yeah. to be fair. But music was... I, I really thought I was going to be a full-time musician. Yeah, yeah. I just played the trumpet, uh, flugelhorn, a um, bit of drums and all that. So my music teachers meant a lot to me. Um, more than a lot of them, really. Yes. But, but, but I still had that love for science. So, you know, I, 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 I knew that I had to keep focused. Yeah. Because if not... If my friends told me to do certain things, or asked me to do certain things, I could easily make the wrong decisions. Yeah. And I remember one, one time my mother said, don't leave the house, you've got to do this, do that in the house. When I come back, I want it all done. And during that time, one of my mates knocked at the door and said, listen, do you want to come out? We're going to go up the, the road up at Highgate with a abandoned railway and do some stuff, you know, yeah. just hang about. Yeah. I said, nope, can't leave this house. It's... It's not good for your health. <laughs> not good for my health. And fortunately, uh, those guys uh, alleged to have, and one of them was convicted for um, uh, a gang rape. And uh, I remember that. I mean, the others who weren't found guilty, their lives never were the same. Never and, you know, those sort of things did happen. Not as re it didn't seem as regularly as it is now, because those are sort of the peer pressure. I think now exceeds parental mm. pressure. And uh, we know it plays itself out in the streets. Um, even today, I was told there's some young man's been airlifted to St. Mary's, yeah. you know, victim of a stabbing. Fortunately, it's stable. Let's hope it carries on. So, in a lot of ways, it, it, it was simpler in school. You had a sphere of influence. You didn't have social media and everything that sort of can distort things. And, uh, and I had that real sense of who I was what made me tick? I was comfortable in my own skin. You know, 
there were records like Young, Gifted and Black. Yes. And I could really identify with that. Not to be superior, but just to feel secure in who I was. Who was Leroy Logan? What's the meaning of Leroy Logan? What is he going to contribute? Um, I was always told that I've got a bit of an old head on young shoulders in those days. Yeah. Um, because I used to think really seriously about these things. Yeah. Um, and I believe that helped me through my schooling and you know, making, navigating through the, the traps could easily get caught up in. Yeah. So how did this young, gifted young man who loved science and loved music, how did you end up becoming a police officer? Yeah. Well, I, I still ask myself that. <laughs> even, when I, even when I was writing the book, I said, really, did I do all this? Um, in, in all honesty, it, 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 was, uh, it was a calling. Nothing more, nothing less, really. Uh, and how it happened was, uh, I was at the Royal Free, my career is chartered, I'm thinking, right, um, I'll be a science researcher. Or, and I was also thinking of that being an access course to medicine. Yes. I was working for... Uh, the medical unit and the professor in charge was Dame Sheila Sherlock, mm -hmm. amazing woman. And um, she, she really inspired a, a very diverse group of scientists from all over the world. Fantastic. Uh, we had patients from all over the world, including heads of state and mm -hmm. all these people. So I thought, this is it. And uh, the Royal Free um, is one of the major teaching hospitals. So it attracts um, people because of our leisure facilities. Mm -hmm. Used to have a swimming pool, gym, games hall, even a bar, and um, other public servants used the facilities, okay. including police officers. But I never—they never used to turn up in uniform. They'd be in their sports um, attire. And um, after uh, a few months of seeing these guys in various parts of of that area of the of the hospital, they declared they were um, police officers. And, um, and automatically, it offset my assumptions about policing. Because as a young man growing up in Islington, primarily, there was um, a lot of navigating through the traps of the sus law. And the sus law was, is a doctrine of various police powers, including the Met Police Act of 1866. And... The doctrine was you could be arrested on suspicion of you're about to commit an arrestable offence. Mm. And that meant that they could read your mind. So yeah. we used to call the police the thought police because they could read your minds when you're going to commit a crime, yeah. which is ridiculous, really. But it was unfortunately subject to racial profiling. Mm -hmm. and, and so I know personally friends and family who was convicted under that and I, I had to make sure I didn't so when they told me they were police officers um, years later at the Royal Free I then thought well actually these are human beings you know they're not the thought police or bricks and blue as we used to call them I, I said okay I'm I get to know them more and so they said oh you know we, we when you have a drive around and they used to take them around Hampstead and on their calls I thought oh well, good job but it's not for me you know? yeah Day after day, when they'd seen me, oh, you know, you'd be really good in the police then. I said, no, 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 not me. And uh, I know I shared it with my, um, my uh, wife, Gretel, who'd 
recently got married, and, and I was saying to her, well, actually, we were fiancés then, yeah, yeah, we were engaged, and I was saying to her, listen, you know, these guys are telling me to Consider join it. the police. And so she, my wife is from Nigeria, mm-hmm. and so she said, well, that's a good job. Mm. So she didn't have any of the hang-ups around the sus floor and everything. Mm. So she said, that's a good job. I said, that's not the answer I wanted. <laughs> that's not the answer. You're supposed to be talking me out of it. And then um, one of my closest friends, uh, a guy called Lee John, um, used to be the lead singer of Imagination uh, in the 80s, um, London group, which still doing, still on the road now. Yes. And um, his mother is a community liaison officer. She used to work very closely with police, building bridges with the community. And she said, uh, I shared with her about these, these police officers think I'd be good at it. She said, Leroy, I don't see you being in a lab for the rest of your life. I can see you as a police officer. I said, Auntie, Jesse, no, that is not what I want. Please leave me alone. And then the final straw was my boss, Roy Pounder. I was, I was, he was doing my appraisal, and he said to me, um, Leroy, I love the work you're doing. Uh, we get on well, but I can't see you in the lab for the next 30 years or so. Mm. I said, and, she said, and he said, well, what do you think I should do? He said, I think you should become a cop. Really? And I couldn't believe it. I thought that someone is ganging up on me here. So this is crazy. Of course. And it's my worst nightmare. And, and I'm getting this from all over different people. I said, okay, okay, I submit, I'll apply. Uh-huh. And then while I'm applying, so this is like late 82, uh, my father's beaten up by police over a traffic matter. Yeah. Local officers in Islington, where we lived. And I uh, couldn't believe. Uh, How I does was, that hit you? Oh, it's yeah. massive. I, I was that raw free in the lab, and I get a call from my mother and my sister, head to Whittington, where dad's been admitted. And uh, I couldn't believe it. He was literally black and blue. In fact, I walked past him, because I didn't recognize him. His face was so contorted. And um, I said, no way. Am I ever going to become a cop? Because one thing, I'm going to tell my dad. Oh, by the way, I hadn't told my dad that I was applying. Um, so how am I going to tell him now? So you hadn't told him before he'd gotten beaten up. What was his attitude towards the police at that point? Well, he didn't know. <laughs> but he finally found out when officers, weeks later, came around the house to check where I lived. At that time, I'd actually moved yeah. Um, and uh, we got a, ha- a flat in Highbury, and he, he said, "My son's what? <laughs> uh, yeah, your your son's joining the police." No, he isn't. <laughs> and he slammed the door. To, oh. yeah. um, but he phoned me, and he said, "This. I told you, don't let cops come to my house." And then he says, "And by the way, these officers said you join the police." I said, "Dad, I meant to tell you," and he dropped the phone on me. Oh. I had to go around and he wouldn't talk to me for weeks. Um, and I remember going to Aunt Jessie and said, Aunt Jessie, the worst thing has happened. Dad won't talk to me because... He's found out about this. Yeah, the, the way in which I did want to find out. And she said, don't worry, I'll sort him out. Oh, great. And, and, and uh, she did. And, and I, I think you may have seen it in the Small Axe film, how they had a quite interesting conversation. I can safely say... Like neither of them swore. My dad didn't swear that way, yeah. <laughs> nor did Aunt Jessie. I think they just Firmly embellished the bit it out. for the drama. But uh, yeah, they, they, but 
Aunt Jessie to, to, was amazing. She said, listen, she spoke to my father and she said, listen, we need people of all backgrounds to join the police. It has to be more reflective. And it was, it was after the Scarman Report, and some of you might know yes. the Scarman Report in 1982 was published as a result of the Brixton riots in 81. So there was this real sort of um, need. There was a recruitment drive. Yes. And uh, I was really pleased when I heard, OK, there's going to be other black officers there. And I was really pleased when I went to Hendon. And my dad actually took me to Hendon, despite his um, reservations. reservations, major yeah. reservations. Uh, and again, in the film, it was quite a touching moment. Um, it wasn't like that in real life. My dad just said, get out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he shook my hand, then he said, get out of the car. Um, <laughs> and, and, and when I joined, there was other people like myself um, from the Caribbean, Africa, Asia. And I was, that, for me, was a, like a verification that this was a good time to join. Yeah. And uh, we forged lifelong friendships. In fact, we're still friends. Brilliant. Yeah. That would have been a great support to you. But what was it like being black, being a person of colour in this institution that had such a reputation at that um, time? Well, it was like being at school again, you know, mm. like being in the, the newbie in school. You know, it, it was, well, if you couldn't take a joint, I'm sorry, if you couldn't take a joke, mm -hmm. you shouldn't have joined. So um, that was one of the major things. So in the sense of humour, they would just take the mickey out of you. You know, the colour of your skin, even your accent or, you know, the colour of your hair, whatever it may be. So it wasn't just on race, but it was on different um, appearances of people. And a lot of them had a real suspicion of me because I was a bit older. I was 26 when I joined in 83. And there was this sufficient, well, you're a scientist and uh, you got a job, so why are you joining the police? And they, they thought I was an undercover journalist, yeah. which I wasn't. Uh, and they said, are you trying to write a book? Well, I suppose eventually they were right because I <laughs> got around to writing one in the end. Um, so there, there was a real suspicion. But I found that you know, my, my upbringing is, Excellence was the best deterrent. So you be good at what you're doing. And, and not just intellectually and knowing your powers and everything, but physically. So if you look the part, mm -hmm. there would be this, like this grudging respect. Yes. That, you know, oh, all right. Someone we can rely on if it all goes wrong. And, um, and I, I used to be quite a sprinter in school. So I used to do 400 hurdles, 400 meter flat, and uh, 110 hurdles as well. So I was like Met Champion at the time, and sports was one of these levelers, mm -hmm. at least, that if they, <laughs> colour wasn't a factor, as long as you win, <laughs> and you're good at what you're doing. So I, 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 was, I was pleased that I had a certain amount of um, respect from that. And they made me deputy class captain, because a class captain was a Sanders instructor, so Tom was bound to get it. So those are the sort of things that gave me um, a certain amount of Reputation, but also Previous. respect. Yeah. And I, I was pleased with that. But what was that like being on a day-to-day -day basis? You, you know, you talk in the book about some of the experiences that had, uh, you know, physically you're there, intellectually you're, you're more than able to, to represent yourself. But what was it like to be in a space that could be so dehumanising? 
Well, it was very isolating. I was questioning my sanity. For the first 10 years, I was thinking, why would I leave that positive environment? But I, I, I kept on telling myself there was a reason for this. I had a vision that I had to be in the organization for a reason. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I had this drive and determination that something was going to come of this and make sure that whatever I did as a public servant. But I also made a clear um, statement to myself that if I lost my beliefs and values and views on life, I would leave in a heartbeat. And I also said, I'm a black man who happens to be a cop. Because here I am in retirement, I'm still a black man. Mm-hmm. And so I, that means I go into the organisation adhering to my beliefs and values and views. I don't feel the need to assimilate mm-hmm. and adopt the norms and values of the culture. I saw it as integrating with my beliefs and values, very clearly part of me, not apologising for who I am, and then making, you know, making sure that I try and work with people as best I can. Yeah. And um, I know in the film, when um, Joe Boyega says, you know, I didn't join to make friends. Yes. I'm here to make a difference. It wasn't as clear-cut as that. I did say yeah. a lot of that. But, um, you know, I, I had to be very clear that, yes, I'm there, the public servant, and I want to be as successful as possible to work primarily with the community. So I was very community-orientated because I came from that community and I I wanted to build bridges, not barriers. So for me, it was really um, clear on where my red lines were. So if anyone stepped over, I'd I'd be very... You know, I made it clear where they are and if you step over it, then I I, I will challenge you. I always said, if I did anything that I believe was unethical... Uh, or criminal or lying or, you know, things that are not worthy of my faith, then, again, I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror. And some people say, well, you know, being a Christian in a police service is not compatible. Well, I, I see it quite different. I see it as, uh, as peacemakers. Yeah. We're sons and daughters of God. So mm. we're, we're supposed to be thought and light. I was just thinking that as you were talking about your experience moving through there, that you're in an environment that is so different to your values, your ethics in that, and just sensing that you are called to be salt and light. Did, were you conscious of that as you were? And, and not as clear as it was. In, in, it actually, everything sort of made sense in 94. 94 was the year that the... Black Police Association was formed Mm. Uh, and also the Lord did something for me which I couldn't understand at the time but as I said I was very physically fit loved doing the work loved working with people and I was you know I felt I was doing really well and then I I was dealing with a I was I did a small team and we were doing drug surveillance and uh, I was um it was a manor house, and um, I ended up 
grappling with a drug supplier and I broke my ankle. Yes, I remember. And I literally was stopped dead. You know, it was like time out. Mm. And, and, and I'm thinking, I, I really want to do stuff. Mm. <laughs> and it was really clear to me, the Lord had said, you know, I needed to do something. Because mm. two months after that, that fracture, uh, I, I went to Bloomsbury Baptist Church where Jesse Jackson was speaking um, to commemorate the 30th anniversary of Martin Luther King being at the church um, in, in 1964. And he spoke so clearly to me. I mean, it was a church full of people, but I felt Jesse Jackson was speaking to me yes. so clearly about, you know, not to conform to this world, but be renewed. By the but transformed by the renewing of your mind in Romans 12. And I thought, wow, it just literally the penny dropped. The BPA was the vehicle in which we addressed inequalities and injustices, not only internally but externally. Yes. And so this was not just a nine to five job, because it was on top of my role. Actual at, job, at this yeah. time, I was, I was a sergeant. And, and so I've got a busy job anyway, much less you've taken on this extra work. And it just, I thought, but it didn't feel like a burden mm. because it was like a commission. Mm. And some people think, oh, you're a religious nut, you know, there's something wrong with you. Um, but for me, it just gave me that real purpose that I needed to commit to, and I'm still committed to yes. equality and injustice. Uh, my public service for me is still in my DNA. Mm. Um, I, that activism, ad advocacy work, that I, I've had to uh, carry out 20 plus years mm. since we started in 94, it still resonates with me. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've never shied away from that and I'm really pleased that the Lord really revealed it to me so clearly till this day. There's, there's never been a doubt. And, and I suppose it, it then made it, it made it clear that I had to go through that process. Yes. That you know, it was, it was I, I went through the crucible fire. Mm. So, you know, I've come out as gold. Yes. <laughs> I like to think so anyway. It, you know, it wasn't perfect. Um, it still isn't perfect, but in terms of what I, I believe the Lord still wants me to do, the police service was a, a very critical part of that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's given me a unique voice that I can speak truth to power in a way that not many people will counter. And I've been shocked by the lack of people who have um, said anything about the book. I mean, yeah. it might be the quiet before the storm, but it's been yeah. out since September last year. And no one has said uh, anything about it. Yeah. Um, so it's either spot on, which I'd like to think it is, yeah. um, and they can't argue with it, or they, 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 they feel a sense that they... It's just not worth having that argument anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I, and I, I, I wanted to make sure that it was my story. Yes. Because I've heard so many things about me from other people and, and what we were doing in the Black Police Association and what we were doing as police officers and police staff members. I wanted to make, ensure that I was speaking my truth. So it sounds like that first 10 years, that experience, um, with all of the racism, and this is overt racism, there's no kind of covering it, 
nicely that you were experiencing, as much as that was a challenge and a crucible, it prepared you for what was going to happen with the Black Police Association. Can you tell us a little bit about the struggles that were there? Why was it set up and what, what challenges? Well, our founding member meeting in, in um, April 93 was as a result of various internal inquiries around resignation rates of black officers. So you're four to five times more likely to leave the Met if, or any police service, actually, uh, if you're black than your white counterparts. So there was a lot of issues around the culture. Yeah. It's very hostile, it's toxic, as I said. There, there's a lot of casual racism, there's a lot of... Um, you, you, you weren't being nurtured, same as your majority culture yeah. colleagues. You had to work twice as hard to get the same sort of recognition. And I applied for certain jobs and I was pushed back, told my face didn't fit, mm. and it was clear that... Uh, what was going on in the society? Very similar, very similar. Uh, policing, like any public service, even the church, mm -hmm. is a reflection of society. Yeah. So we, we, we realised we needed to have a voice. And so our founder member meeting in April 93 was the same month that Stephen Lawrence was yes. killed. And our lives started to work, work parallel with yeah. them. And we, we launched in 94... Uh, our overarching aim is to improve the working environment of black personnel so we're better equipped to serve the needs of the black, of the black community because of the disparities around stop and search, excessive use of force and conviction rates and, and so forth. So it was, it was clear that we, 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 we had people resonating with, that, with our aims and objectives and they identified with it. And so much so that when the... Lawrence Inquiry was called by Jack Straw, the Home Secretary at the time, and they asked myself and two other members of the, the, the BPA to give evidence. We, we had an understanding, we have to say it as it is. We couldn't dilute it because we actually loved the organisation. Yes. We still do. But, but they, we had to tell them what they needed to know mm. and not what they'd like to say. They didn't want... We, we weren't going to be into misplaced loyalties. Yes. We, we weren't going to allow misplaced loyalties to prevent this opportunity to speak truth to power. And we were able to put clear evidence of not only the casual racism and intolerances within the organisation and externally, but also speak about the systemic failures mm -hmm. around the institutional racism. As a result of that, the, the report that was published in uh, February 99 reflected a lot of what we said. It, it wasn't, I mean, the McPherson report wasn't far removed from the Scullman report. No, it wasn't, yeah. Um, almost uh, 17 years later, yeah. 17, 18 years later. But the issue was the BPA gave a lens into the culture that no one could actually ignore. Yes. And, um, no, I must admit, it, it gave a chance for not just black personnel, but all officers of all cultures and background and members of the community to say, well, listen, thank you for doing that. Um, some people will never forgive me yeah. for doing that, but you know, it was a what would Jesus do type thing. Yeah. He, he was never thankful for what he did, so yeah. <laughs> I wasn't waiting for thanks, but I had to be truth, truthful to, to my purpose and, and the mission that I had. I was pleased that we gave evidence but you know we won't point the finger 
thinking, you know, you've got to do something. We've got three fingers pointing back at us saying, what are we going to do? So we owned a lot of the recruitment, retention, progression, performance indicators. That, again, was around the culture, changing the culture of the organization, <clears throat> and doing work around improving um, critical incidents training, investigations, family liaison officers, independent advisors groups, all these sort of things. So we were really involved in that. And, and, and I, th I think another key thing that helped that the McPherson report over Scalman years earlier was the independent oversight group that Jack Straw chaired with Neville and Dorian Lawrence. Yes. And they were able to monitor progress. Got what, what gets measured gets done. Yeah. And so they were able to hold chief constables, including the commissioner, to account to ensure that they gave the issues of a reflective organisation better equipped to serve the needs of a more diverse public. Because there's an inextricable link between how you treat your diverse personnel, how it helps you to be equipped to serve the needs of your diverse public better. Yes. Yes. So you need a reflective organisation to do that. Uh, there's a human, moral and business case around that. Yeah. And, and so we, we, we owned it, um, but we knew that if you put your head above the parapet, so, someone, you're going to be on the sights of someone. You're, you're going to be a target. So I wasn't surprised <laughs> yes. when I got investigated over an £80 hotel bill. Yes, he did say that, an £80 yeah, hotel yeah, bill. I, yeah, and I could really see myself jeopardising my reputation, yeah. my whole sort of career for £80. And I remember when they served the papers on me, uh, they said, you know, um, integrity has zero tolerance on the lack of integrity. And I said, well, I wish that was the case for even my white counterparts. Yeah. <laughs> because I saw how I was being treated was not the same as my white counterparts. But I knew it was going to happen the, that sort of sense of discerning sense yeah, you speak of, uh, about in your spirit you really my felt spiritual antennae was on high alert yes and um, so and, and again the Lord equipped me with that peace and that strength to say listen you've just got to show your purpose in all this how you need to keep a direction and keep focused on what I've, I've got you to do it's really interesting because, you know, just listening and reading to that part of the book when you're talking about it, it does actually remind me of um, how the FBI actually were treating parts of the civil rights um, leaders at that time, people being trailed. You know, we know that Stephen Lawrence... Um, Stephen Lawrence's family were experiencing that kind of treatment as well. Your deputy was, you know, taken into this... Um, it, the original um, investigation was about your deputy and then it was put onto you as the chair. How, how did that affect you? Because this, this is just, you're watching the organisation that you have loved mm. turn away from you. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I just looked at you know, how historical figures, including um, in our faith, how they were treated when they spoke yes. truth and, and carry out their purpose. So I anticipated it. So I, I wasn't shocked. I wasn't 
I wasn't thinking, well, why doesn't, why doesn't it happen to someone else? And, and it was clear to me, well, it has to happen to you because yes. you can deal with it. Yes. And um, again, th th that sense of identity and, and purpose was very clear to me. I, I, I didn't feel that, I, I, I felt equipped to deal with it. Even when my 10-year-old son, well, my youngest son was 10 at that time, and I remember him saying, so this was like 2002, 2003, my 10-year-old said to me, Dad, are you going to prison um, for this? And that really broke my heart, I must admit. You know, I'm a police officer after all, yes. and then your 10-year-old is saying, are you going to go to prison? Yes. And uh, no, I must admit, it, 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 that, that was tough. But I said, no, Miles, trust me, everything's fine. Daddy will get through this. Um, Mummy and Daddy will get through this. And, and you know, it's, it's important for my children, for my wider family, fellowship, community, to know that there was this issue that could be, or it could be resolved to maintain my, my reputation, my integrity, my Just, just to clarify for people, what was, what was the situation with the £80? Well, basically, um, I, I, it, four years prior to that allegation being made to me in, in 2003, I went to, a, to the launch of the Manchester Black Police Association. So I was, I was the first national chair, and I went to the launch. And I remember that time, I, I, I was very clear that something was stirring my spirit. I, I knew something was... Um, I just felt people were plotting about. Mm -hmm. But I didn't... It's not like I was paranoid. I just knew something was going to... Yeah. I didn't know when or how. And, and I remember pestering my wife, saying, Gretel, you need to come with me to this launch. Because I normally don't bother her. And she, and she, you know, she used to work in the city at the time. She had her own career. And she said, um, why? why? Why are you bothering me about this? <laughs> I said, no, you need, you need to come with me. And, she, and, you know, I convinced her and she came with me. It was really important because... She knew exactly where I was, what we did. She came back, she gave... She even had to give a statement. Mm -hmm. you know, your wife has to give a statement for a crime against you as a police officer. And um, it, it was so f clear that they were just looking at me in a disproportionate way. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and it's only because one of my, my deputy chair was subject to a more extensive investigation... And all that information didn't stack up to a hill of beans yes. of admissible evidence. Yeah. So they had to pick on something else to justify all the millions of pounds to investigate him. Yes. And they, they picked on me. So I, I, I just thought, well, you know, I, I'm going to prove you wrong. I, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to make sure... I'm going to ensure that truth will come out. And... Uh, and it did. It didn't even go past the Crown Prosecution Service, and I was um, fully exonerated. And I sued the Met uh, for hurt of feelings and reputational damage. Mm -hmm. and, and they agreed to compensate me. But I said I, I would not agree to being compensated until all the other cases, like mine, mm -hmm. where black officers seem to be getting unjust treatment compared yeah. to the white counterparts, yeah. clear all the decks, yeah. and then I'll accept mine, which we were able to do. And I remember um, my... Um, actually, when I, I, I got investigated, well, I got interviewed 
um, during the investigation. In fact, I was interviewed longer than the Stephen Lawrence suspects. Uh, they were in and out the police station before you knew it. I, I had a four-hour grilling, and um, in fact, Gretel thought I'd been arrested and charged and put inside because she thought I'd be home by lunch because I left home early and, and, and um, you know, just to do this. And so she, she was uh, concerned. But I, 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 I was pleased that one of my mentors, a, a man called John Greaves, who was Deputy Assistant Commissioner, amazing man, he, he stepped up to be my friend during that interview. Yes. And as a result of that, I, um, I was able to have him at, at my side, which is unheard of for such a senior officer to be on the side of, because yeah. I, I was in chief inspector at the time, yeah. and uh, he's deputy assistant commissioner, and I thought, wow, you know, just to have him be there. And I remember after that whole saga, he said to me, Leroy, you, you've shown a real composure and just maintain being presidential. Yeah. Not being fully yourself or blasé or think you're... In, you know, superior to everyone else, but just be clear on what you need to do. And I remember a, another senior officer, uh, David Vanessa, the assistant commissioner, he went on to work with Kofi Annan. Okay. And I remember him saying to me, Leroy, use your power wisely. Yeah. And I realized it wasn't my power, it was God's power. We had put me in corridors of, of authority and how I needed to make uh, changes from within. And till this day, a lot of the systems we changed, the, the, the way, especially when it comes to racial profiling, even the Race Relations Amendment Act came out of uh, the work we were doing, and um, hate crime being a clear uh, component of that. And how you have to be a proactive organization, proactively challenging racism. Yeah. And you can't be passive. You can't be uh, complicit by silence. Mm. You need to be challenging. And, and, and the importance of allyship yeah. and how we were working with all members of the organization. And in fact, through the BPA, we had allyship because yeah. our definition of black was um, not, an you know, not an assessment of color, but the shared experience of African, African Caribbean, Asian origins. Yeah. So we had white members as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that we knew the importance of allyship. I want to ask you a question because um, that McPherson report, one of the key points out of it was that the police were, in, were deemed institutionally racist. And we sit in a church, in the Church of England, and that very recently has been one of the reflections that the church has had to come to terms with. As a person who's led in an organisation that's had to face that, what, could, what, word of, what advice could you give us as the Church of England? What should we be doing now? I think we all need to have conversations about racism is like sexism, is, is like homophobia. It, it's really understanding that we all fall short of the mark. And we haven't got a perfect organisation. Um, and I always, I always say that, like, police service, 
There's nothing bad about the police service that can't be put right by what's good in it. All the ingredients are there. Mm -hmm. They just need the right ethical leadership, the right accountability and transparency to ensure that the organization is fit for purpose for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Don't see the challenges from different groups as a threat. Yes. You know, that's why I called the book Closing Ranks, because I used to see the organization, even before I joined, when my father was beaten up, even though he sued them successfully, I saw they'd close ranks around his case to convict him of something they never did, yeah. and justifying the excessive force and abuse of power. And so I saw it even before I joined. And then I saw it on various occasions throughout my 30 years, where if the organization is being threatened or there's a sense of um, them being seen to be at fault, because it's a very can-do, success-driven organization. You get promoted through success. So they they don't allow, you know, um, failure. And um, that, that for me, is um, they need to understand that if you challenge, it's sometimes because you love the organization and it needs to improve. And don't close ranks at the expense of truth and justice, but actually understand that difference needs to be acknowledged and have the maturity to, to respond in a way that you can see the benefits of it. Uh, but at least have a conversation and, and understand that person's point of view. And don't just dismiss it and think, you're a threat, we need to eliminate you in yes. some way or form. Thank you. Challenging and really helpful feedback to us. I'm pretty sure we have go, gone over time and we have wanted to do some questions. Well, what could be? How far do you think the Met has got to go. If you were charismatic, what would you do? Yeah, actually, um, I know Craig very well. Uh, I, I worked with her during the McPherson inquiry 20 odd years ago. Um, in fact, she was my go-between person when they were negotiating a settlement with me. Yeah. <laughs> so I know Craig very well. Um, and even the mayor, the, the current mayor, Sadiq Khan, um, was my lawyer. <laughs> so all these key people there but no, what I would do if I was Chris um, I would change the narrative don't talk trash saying I'm going to put you in prison I'm going to make sure you're in fear because a lot of our young people are already in fear yes. they fear their peers it, 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 unfortunately certain groups, certain cultures certain backgrounds it, and it's not just in crime hotspots yeah you know, they are actually in fear already. So I, I would say change the narrative. Um, understand that there is an issue and, and ha- bring in that ethical leadership that's really critical around making those changes that need to be made. And ensuring that people who say, well, the Met Police is not as great as it should be, don't see them as a threat. Um, and, and just lastly, some of you may have heard about... Um, the Daniel Morgan case, um, only last week, where the report that showed that the, the, the Met Police was 
uh, institutionally corrupt. Yes. Um, that, again, is something where the Met, for years, over 30 years, was closing ranks. Mm-hmm. And, and even if they would said, listen, we have a problem, we need to look at it proactively, and don't be seen to be holding things back. And, and that's the thing that um, people are really questioning, the leadership of the Met at the moment. Why are they seen to be holding back and not facilitating information that they should? So I would change all that. Bring in independent oversight. Um, as I said with, with McPherson, that independent oversight had a lot to do about holding the Met to account and other force areas. So I, I, I would open the doors. Hello. Hearing you speak tonight, we're of an age, literally. Um, I was so impressed. Have you thought of standing in politics at all? Because <laughs> to have a reasoned, intelligent voice is very good, and I'd certainly vote for you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, yes, I have thought about it. Um, especially, I, I actually was an advisor to um, Sadiq Khan. I was his police advisor. Um, and until the election night, um, he sort of cut me out. So, <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't get upset by that. Uh, we, 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 I'm, I'm moved on. Um, so I, but I, I am really thinking about public office because I see it as an act of public service. Mm-hmm. Because I've been a public servant well over 30 odd years, uh, almost 40 years now. And I see that people want honesty. Um, not spin, they want substance in what they see around their, their neighbourhoods and, 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 and don't try and say everything's fine. When, and don't undermine people's intelligence by saying mm-hmm. everything's fine. You know, the streets are perfect or, you know, the police are perfect. No, it, just, just be honest. So I, 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 I am really considering it. I'm, I'm looking very closely um, at it and... Um, if, 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 you, if you're willing to vote for me, and hopefully there's a few others. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone wants to be part of my campaign team, please. But I wanted to ask you about young people and this um, horrendous business of carrying knives. Because whenever I read in the newspaper of another family, another mother, who's grieving her, you know, her young boy... 14, 16, just in the street, and he's never coming home. It just is heartbreaking. And I don't, well, I don't understand why, well, I don't understand the need for carrying knives, really, and how this is developed, seems to be very suddenly in the last few years. Yeah. Um, and what can, what can we, or what can be done about it? And how to reach the young people? Okay, well, um, thank you for that question. The actual issues around youth culture and how it's been hijacked by violence and crime, certain elements of youth culture, is it, it, not an overnight phenomenon. We always had the, the sort of bad boy element in youth culture, the rebellious piece. Yeah. But it's, it's been normally contained. But there's been a couple of changes 
um, of recent memory. Maybe that's why it's come to a notice. But let me just summarize very quickly. The young people who would be on the margins of, say, gangs, because there's a dif difference between being part of an organized gang and just being part of a negative peer group. But in the late 90s, when crack cocaine came from the States, literally swamped towns and cities across this country, they used young people as a form of distributing it and selling it. Because all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever seen crack, but it's like wax, and they keep it in the film, cling film, and they keep it in their mouth. So when someone comes to them, they, they literally spit it out and sell it. That phenomenon's been going on since the late 90s. And so it's a easily concealable, easily transferable, high market commodity. And they use youngsters on the street to distribute it. All of a sudden, you start to see these little pockets of crime activity building into, like, the early O's in quite deprived areas. And these youngsters were the vehicle. And then you, you start to see there was this rivalry. So you start to hear about this postcode rivalry because all these little pockets of little negative youngsters or negative thinking youngsters selling drugs. And a lot of the violence was to do with drug rivalry. So you had this postcode wars. But even then it was still confined in certain areas. But what really brought it into everyone's attention is the music. I'm not saying it's caused the violence, but it's a way of promoting it. You know, the negative music. These are cofactors of it. Um, you know, the, the drill music it, and, and how it advocates violence. And it glamorizes violence and criminal activity. But at the same time, we, we, we in the Black Police Association, we set up a, a, a youth leadership program called Young Leaders for Safer Cities. And um, it's still going now, 20, 20 odd years later. Because we realize education is the key. We need to tell our young people what are the issues that you are having, you're easily getting hijacked. You know, one, one of the ways they were grooming them is through food. So they would give them, you know, dysfunctional role models would go to young people they thought was vulnerable to that message and, and buy them food after school and give them money and buy them garments, you know, shoes, trainers. You know, young people love trainers. They'll spend hundreds, thousands of pounds on trainers. Um, so all these things were a form of grooming that process. Then this goes on to about 2010, and it's building. And, and crime has been going up and down. But what we had at the, those early O's going on to 2010 were strong, safer neighborhood teams. Yes. They were ring-fenced. They had a sergeant, two constables, and three PCSOs. And they were ring-fenced their wards. So they could spot a lot of the issues with certain um, young people. And it's not necessarily deprived areas. Sometimes we saw young people being picked off because they come from a good area, but they're vulnerable to the message, the bad buying message, gangster glamour, as they, they say, with the, the, the various forms of music. We, we realise that we have to empower our young people or get, create the environment for them to self-empower to 
develop positive peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. And, and that program called Voyage Youth, we're still we're based in Hackney. But what has really made it worse since 2010 and now is the disconnect between police and young people. Because got rid of your safe and neighbor teams, they were decimated. And as a result of that, you, you've got um, that void between the police and young people. And who's filled that void? Are these dysfunctional role models, a critical mass of them, who groom even more youngsters into these negative peer groups, which can get into gangs. And social media, the dreaded social media, as it's, again, it's been an exponential growth of that. And again, it's not social media that's caused, caused it, it's the co-factor of how to do, develop that. So, so the building up of the violence and glamorizing of it, and now the growth of it through social media has meant that when there used to be feuds with people, maybe, you know, it'd be discreet. Few people would know. Now the whole world knows through social media. So if you had a problem with someone, all of a sudden, you, the other contacts on your social media platform would say, you're not going to let that person do that to you. You can't let that. So they're bombarded with this, you know, Shame respect factor. culture. You know, you can't be shamed. You've got to do something. And so these feuds that would normally wouldn't happen, social media has just proliferated it. And then you've now got where people are brandishing cutlasses and swords, um, samurai swords, and, and can't manage their conflict because they think they're losing face if they don't go and deal with that person. Because social media says... It's dictating this. And this is where police have, uh, are just trying to catch up because this disconnect continues even when everyone's locked down in COVID. Yes. You know, and, and the social media feuds are still going on. And they're, all right, they keep a low profile maybe during lockdown, but once it starts to open up, I remember that. Oh, yeah, don't forget, you've got to deal with him or her or whatever it may be. So it's, it's snowballing. And it, and, it, and it has to have the right sort of connection. And not just police, it's, it, you know, it, it has to be wider. It, it has to be youth services. It has to be um, a public health approach. And, and trauma-informed practitioners to know the adverse child experiences these youngsters are going through and the various other fears they have. As I said, don't tell them that you're going to put them in prison because some of them are already in a form of prison. They can't go from A to B. That's to go all around different areas because they can't go through a certain postcode or they know there's certain people looking out for them. So it is a challenge, but I really think we can get that coordinated approach uh, uh, to ensure that our young people feel safe because everyone needs to feel safe because if, if people don't feel safe, they're not going to work with police or any other services. You know, we, we want to convict someone we want people to come forward. There are eyes and ears. You can't just use CCTV or, or just forensic. We need people to work with the with, with police to make statements, go on an ID parade, go to court. Now, they're not going to do that. They feel you can't reassure them to be safe. You know, people want to do their 
civic duty, but you've got to make them feel safe. And that's one of the biggest issues that really needs to be understood fully so that we can get this balance back and re-establish those partnerships. But heavy-handed policing does not help, especially young people. You, you know, if they feel over-policed over and under-protected, they're not going to work with police. And that's what we picked up with Voyage over the last 20 years. And, and so I'm not just talking from, oh, when I was a police officer eight years ago, or even my work on the Youth Violence Commission over the last few years. I'm, I'm talking about work that I'm doing now. And there needs a realist understanding. So the church, I truly believe, um, when they have outreach teams, and I know a lot of your outreach team are actually with um, a victim of a stabbing now, when they see that people are willing to step out and work with them and understand their reality and get, has got that cultural understanding, that cultural awareness, there, there can be changes. So I think everyone has to step up. It's not just, you know, police are not going to arrest their way out of the problem or stop and search their way out of the problem. They really need to work with all members of the community. Yes, thank, oh, sorry, thank you for a fascinating talk. I'm sorry if I missed it. I'm just wondering, did you say what led you to leave the police? And if you didn't, I was just interested to know if there was a reason that led you to leave. Um, I, I did 30 years. So I, 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 <laughs> Enough already. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was time to uh, move on and, and, and do, do things that I'm really passionate about, working with young people, uh, which I still am, and... Um, I, I really sense that there was something new that the Lord wants me to do, and, um, and it happened with the, the, the Small Act series with Steve McQueen and Red, White, and Blue, and, and, and it influenced me in really how I was going to emphasize certain things in the book around relationships and, and my relationship with God and being honest with that. It, 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 it's, my book actually started in 2010. I had the title but I just didn't feel like it was being authentic for me. And, and um, I knew I had to have a spiritual journey and, and share that spiritual journey. So that was really, really important for me. And I don't think I would have done it if I was still in the police service, to be fair. I just felt free to do the right thing, um, even more so. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm really pleased that I did my 30 years... I still love the Met. I still challenge them because I love them. Um, they might not think that, but sometimes you've got to tell them what they need to know, what they would like to hear. You mentioned you had a mentor in the a Met. A mentor? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did, you have, uh, how did you end up having this mentor? Did you ask him? Or... Oh, right, mentor. No, I, I, I have several mentors. Um, my, my parents were great mentors. Um, I, I just, especially um, it, it, once you get into, um, I think, I understand that you can't do it yourself and you're only as good as the people you're surrounded by. So mentors is maybe a formal word, but I've always had someone I believe can assist me to understand the world in which I live in and what, how I fit in. So the, the police, I, I, I think, is... Uh, like any public organisation, it's good to have people outside your direct supervision to give you a wider understanding yes. of the organisation and to give you certain um, 
tips on how to improve yourself and put, put yourself across. Um, so I, I've, I've been really fortunate that um, people that had such significant roles in the, in the Met Police were willing to be um, a mentor. Um, I, I'm still friends to this very day, so I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, those people gave so much time. And, and so you have to give back. So I, I have mentees, even in retirement, one, she's just been made a detective superintendent, and I'm really pleased, and one's just become a detective inspector. So I, I, you know, I'm really pleased that, um, you know, I, what I've been fortunate to experience with someone who's got those, and not necessarily they have to be the same profession. There can be people who, again, have an understanding of the world in which you want to operate, but they're not necessarily in the same profession. So I've had mentors who are outside the organization. I remember having a mentor in the corporate world when I was a senior officer in the Met. And that gave me such an understanding around the public and how they perceive us and what are the, what are the things that we really need to look at. So I, I, I think it's um, good to have someone who, who will challenge you to ensure that you're not just going to accept that you're great and everything's fine. Leroy, there's one thing that really struck me listening to you talking, um, and that is how much your sense of purpose and vision sustains you. Um, indeed, largely from your faith, but there's, there's been this sense throughout the whole career that you were there to do something. And I'm reminded of that wonderful line from the book of Proverbs, that without vision the people perish. And I think had you not had that vision and that sense of your purpose, you probably would have perished. And it's all much to our advantage that you didn't. So thank you very much. And thank you, Natasha, for uh, being such a brilliant interviewer. So thank you both. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10 Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.